0: Better way to do this. Let me show
1: you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Speargo with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, August the 8th, 2012, and this is episode 955 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, Today we have another cool show. You guys uh, got on me real hard wanting me to bring beekeepers on, and I kicked the hive and got a whole bunch of beekeepers swarming out of the hive. Uh, we are going to talk today to a gentleman named Matt Reed of Beethinking.com. Like the prior beekeeper we had on, he is a top bar natural beekeeper, and he has some interesting angles on that to talk to us about today. I'll bring him on in just a moment. Uh, before I do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Uh, food storage is great, but like anything, if you're storing it, there's a finite limit to how much money you have to buy it with and how much space you have to keep it in. If you really want to become sustainable and self-sufficient with your food supply, you have to start producing some of it. If you head over to BackyardFoodProduction.com and get Marjorie Wildcraft's DVD, You'll learn how to turn your backyard into a literal food production machine, how to produce your own vegetables, fruits, meats, you name it, and then how to do things like dehydrate your food. There's a bonus DVD with a ton of documents on it that are probably worth the cost of the DVD alone. Check her out today, Marjorie Wildcraft, at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, it is important to have a gun. It is. And in this day and age, and, and just, to, just so that your rights in the Constitution are upheld, the biggest thing you can do as a, as, a, as a supporter of the Second Amendment is be a responsible gun owner. But there may come a time where that gun actually needs to be used for defense. There may come a time where, God forbid, you're in the middle of something like the Colorado shooting. And I think it's easy for us because we all have our own internal belief about what we'll do in a crisis. So it's easy for us to believe that, well, unless I'm like the first guy shot, I'm going to know what to do and I'm going to do the right thing. In chaos and in mayhem, it doesn't work that way. You fall back to your highest, actually your lowest level of training, I think is a better way to put it. You know, it's, it's about what have you trained over and over and over again to do and do right. And, you know, I talk a lot about training courses like uh, Fortress Defense Consultants offers and Frank Sharp Jr.'s operation offers, but... Um, it's not just about going there one time and training. It's about going there and learning how to really train effectively so that you can then take that training and do it over and over and over and over again on your own. And then maybe once every year or every other year, go take a formal training course. So check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Uh, again, the company Fortress Defense Consultants. Uh, next uh, up, I want to remind you guys about TSP Copper. Hey, we're talking about bees today. A lot of you guys are beekeepers. Do you know we have a, kind of a coin for the beekeepers at TSP Copper? It's the honeypot coin with the beehive and everything on the back of it. Really cool. And anything else you would want to really share about liberty and self-sufficiency and independence, we probably have something for that too. Remember, all MSB members get 10% off all your orders. At tspcomper.com. Next up, remember you can support the show by joining the member support brigade. You do that, you get uh, exclusive content available nowhere else. You get discounts to over 32 vendors. You get all kinds of really great stuff and you help support the show. Remember, Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service. Uh, you guys can get a special discount. Just send me an email with uh, service discount the subject line with a little blurb about who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And I'll also remember, I, I provide that discount to first responders as well, such as paramedics. So if you think you qualify, email me and we'll see if you do. Most people that email me do. Don't write me a book, guys. Don't you know? If you want to, that's fine. But all you really need to say is here, I, this is my name. This is what I did. This is what I worked, and, and that type of thing. I've had people ask things like, you know, what if you work for Border Patrol or whatever? Law enforcement, law enforcement guys, it applies to all. All right. With that all wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into our uh, main show today, our main topic today and get our special guest on. Uh, Our special guest is named Matt Reed. He started Bee Thinking in 2008 as a beekeeping resource for natural beekeepers. Since their Bee Thinking has grown into one one of the largest top bar and uh, Warren uh, Hive suppliers in the world unlike most beekeepers, Matt doesn't promote the use of chemicals or medication or treatments of any kind, relying instead on strong colonies who live without his manipulations and uh, we talked to Matt after we actually did this interview and he uh, offered to do a discount for any of you guys that want to uh, to buy one of his hives. and the discount code is SURVIVAL I bring that up before the introduction uh, simply because we hadn't decided to do that when I conducted this interview and I wanted to make sure you got that, so again the discount code is SURVIVAL, I'll include a mention of it in the show notes today, and I'll fix in a little blurb at the end to remind you guys as well. Discount code SURVIVAL, and that will give you uh, a discount on Matt's hives, in fact, 8% off all of the hives available at bthinking.com. With that, hey, Matt, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. man.
0: Thanks. Glad to be here.
1: So you were one of the uh, the many beekeepers that uh, that came out of the hive when I said I needed uh, I needed to get some bee folks on and hopefully we'll do you know a few in a row here and uh, get some of the other bee people off my back and like where's all the beekeepers but uh, we just had Phil on Phil Chandler on a couple weeks ago talking about top bar hives and that's actually the method that you use as well is it not it is. And, you know, I'm going to kind of throw a question at you very similar to what I asked, Phil, in regard to that. Um, Obviously, you've decided to do this a bit of a different way uh, than, like, let's say, conventional beekeeping. So, obviously, you must see some issues with the landstrom hives or whatever. So, what do you see that's not quite right with modern beekeeping?
0: Uh, I see a number of things that I don't agree with. Uh, When I got started in beekeeping, uh, just like Phil, uh, I went and did what... Most people do. I picked up a book, and just about all the books out there are about using Langstroth hives and frames and foundation and medication and all of that stuff. And so, as I was reading, I was wondering, you know, do I have to do it this way? I figured there's got to be an alternative. And it took me a little while uh, before I could I could find other options. And one of those uh, resources I found, of course, was Phil's forum and webpage. Um, but some of the issues i see with today's beekeeping with langstroth hives and other similar box hives that use foundation is just that they they use foundation it's a pressed wax um comes from beekeepers usually it's sent into a a large manufacturer they they filter it they heat it they press it into that hexagon shape that you're used to seeing and then the bees have to draw their combs out on that um, but in my own experiments and, and other people's experiments, uh, the bees tend to prefer to build their own combs without any uh, cells imposed upon them, because uh, in a natural beehive, the bees have lots of different cell sizes. Um, and you know. I mean, just to be honest,
1: if we look at it, there were bees around long before there were people, and they figured out how to make their combs without us before we showed up.
0: Exactly. And so, to me, the, the foundation or the, the combs that the bees build, to me, that's like their bones. It's like the, their body. And that's where they store all of their food. That's where they rear their young. That's where they spend most of their time is on this comb. And so, to me, uh, letting them do it the way they want to is important.
1: Now, you use top bar hives, but you also use something called, a, if I say it wrong, correct me, but a war
0: hive. Yeah, it's a Warré hive. Warré, so what is that? It's also a top bar hive. It's just a vertical top bar hive. So the top bar hive that Phil talked about, I also use those um, as well. Um, but so that the one that Phil mentioned, which is a horizontal top bar hive, it's basically a long hive with a bunch of bars laid across a, a box. Uh, in his case, it has sloped sides, just like ours. Um, but the, the Warré hive, it's a newer hive. It came about in the early 1900s. It was developed by a monk in France, uh, who looked at something like 300 different hive designs, and he created what he called the People's Hive. He thought it was a, uh inexpensive hive to build himself, or he, ha- he had minions, so uh, I recommend all beekeepers get some minions. Some minions. But, uh, <laughs> so he would build these hives. They were inexpensive. uh They were simple to manage. He wanted a very hands-off hive, a hive he could essentially dump bees into, give them the space they need and continue giving them that space as they grow. And then at the end of the season or the next season, harvest honey. And so he, he you know, he certainly wanted to profit from his bees too. He wanted to get honey off, enough honey off to pay for his operation, um, but not at the same scale that you see today where, you know, beekeepers are getting hundreds and hundreds of pounds off their hives and feeding them back, uh, you know, sugar or high fructose corn syrup.
1: So explain to me a little bit and for the audience how, these uh, Warrior hives are designed because I'm looking at one now. It looks like a big tower. And with a uh, horizontal top bar, I get it because all the bars are there and you lift one up and there's a comb underneath. And it's either a brood cone or a honeycomb. This looks like it's got like multiple boxes. So are they like multiple boxes and then each box has bars hanging from it? Is that how this works?
0: Exactly. So okay. usually with the Warrior hive, you, you start them with two boxes. Each of those boxes will have usually eight bars, eight top bars. They're, just, they're little top bars with spaces in between them so the bees can crawl up and down between the boxes. And so the bees will build eight of their own natural combs per box. And then as they build, and this, this is the big difference between the warrior hive and the langstroth hive that you're used to seeing in the U.S. and Australia and Canada, is that they rather than adding boxes on top uh, and then letting the, build, the bees build upward, you add boxes below and the bees build downward. So the reason for that is that Warrior was designing his hive. He wanted to make it like a natural nesting cavity, like a tree or a wall or someplace that bees would choose to live, you know, of their own volition, Uh, you know, not a beehive per se. And so he made his boxes a little bit smaller so that they can, there's less dead space inside. Uh, If you look at a Langstroth box, they're significantly larger. Um, But these boxes are about 12 inch by 12 inch square. And so as they build down, you add an, another box or two below, and they'll continue building downward. And this is exactly how you'd see bees build if they were to move into the tree in your backyard or if they were to move into your wall.
1: They'd start out high, and they'd, they'd go down from there. Right. Is there a reason they do that, or is it just what they do? Or is there a no. reason we don't know?
0: It's because they whatever cavity they move into, they attach their combs to the top of it. Okay. And then they continue building downward until they run out of room. Uh, with the Langstroth hive? Uh, the, the reason we add boxes on top of Langstroth hives, or at least why they started doing that, is mostly for the, the beekeeper's benefit. It's easier than adding boxes below. Sure. You, know, you can, Especially if we've got a lot of boxes on.
1: Well, I was uh, just thinking, if you have, let's say, a hive that's been built up to like four or five boxes and they're heavy and full, I, and I guess you can move them, you put your new base down and, and then start moving them sort of one at a time, but it seems like a
0: pretty good way to piss the bees off, too. Right. It's... It sounds quite invasive, but there's... One, if you have a helper, it's pretty easy to lift a hive. (laughs) Uh, You could pick it up, set it aside for a moment, put your empty boxes on. I usually add two at a time so I don't have to go and bother my bees sure. so much. And sure. so it's usually maybe once a season or maybe twice a season in a good year uh, where okay. I'd have to add more boxes. So it's not like you're going there every day and bothering the bees. And yeah, and I'm sure of, there's a finite
1: limit. We're not making a tower, tower of Babel here. Is there kind of like a, a point where you say, okay, that's as
0: many as they need? Or Well, bees are surprising. They, they can... Uh, blow your mind sometimes at how much they can build in a good year I've had them up to six boxes tall okay. about as tall as I am I'm you know about five seven so it's uh, it can get pretty high and that, that's certainly not as tall as some Langstroth hives I've seen pictures on the internet of some beekeepers with Langstroths so that they have to get on a ladder you know they're ten feet or higher because uh, the bees have such a good nectar flow they're just going to keep building and building until there's, there's not enough resources to keep that's going that's
1: a lot of bees yeah <laughs> Very, very cool. So I had a question that I actually forgot to ask, Phil, so I'm going to ask you this, and it may not have anything to do with anything, but I was uh, at a guy's place one time. He had conventional hives, and one of the hives was just covered with bees, and I'm like, are they fixing a swarm or something? And it was really hot out. He said, no, they're just hot, basically. He said, it's like when you, in the old days before you had air conditioning, you'd go sit out on the porch. Um, And do maybe, is there maybe a little less heat? shock because you don't have the super over it creating a cavity or or what have you or does really is there no difference there
0: uh in just about any type of hive you'll see the bees well, that's called bearding where they hang off the entrance yeah so if it's warm if it's humid and also if there's just a lot of bees uh it, it happens more at night when they're not foraging because when they're foraging, half the bees are out foraging they're outside so there's, yeah there's, there's a little more room to crawl around but once it you know once night arrives, you'll see big beards of bees hanging off of your hives i'm actually I can look out my window right now and I see you know some decent sized beards on on my hives so that's usually not a bad sign. I would just make sure they have enough space and, you know if if all their boxes are full. Certainly give them more boxes, or if you've got a horizontal top bar hive like Phil and I both use, uh, you know, give them more space. There's, there's divider boards in there usually, so you can keep giving them a little more room. Cause you okay. certainly don't want to, um, have them run out of space, cause then they will start swarming, cause there, there's nothing else they can do.
1: Sure, they're like, okay, we're done, we're gonna go make another, another home. Um, right. do you have a personal preference? I mean, obviously you, with your business, you provide people with the horizontal hives and the warres. Do you, personally prefer one over the other
0: uh i like them both for different reasons my favorite hive to work in is, is a horizontal topper hive uh, just because many of the reasons phil mentioned you don't have to lift heavy boxes the bees tend to be more gentle in those hives because you're not exposing so many bees at once when you need to go in and uh they're just they're at a nice height usually the ones that phil makes the ones that i make they're usually at about counter height so i don't have to strain my back at all um so i do like those but the, the warree hive for me is a little, it's more hands-off, so it's more scalable. So I've got something like 40 hives right now. Okay. About half my hives are warree hives. And as I expand, I'll continue expanding with warrees just because there's, there's less input involved per warre over the year. With the horizontal hives, they're a fixed cavity size. So if you have a good year, and the bees could easily fill up that whole box. And if they do that, then you have got to start harvesting. You've got to,
1: even if you wanted to let it over winter like Phyllis, you've got to harvest them because they need capacity, and it's it's not as easy to. It's, you know, I guess it's not possible to expand because it's a, like you said, it's a fixed cavity.
0: Right. There, there's some ways people kind of Jerry rig boxes on top of them. I don't recommend <laughs> doing that. I would just harvest until they've got enough space. And I certainly leave them far more than they need every winter. Um, so okay. definitely give them plenty for your climate.
1: So if somebody's going to get started with this, like how much, you're, you're mentioning with 40 hives, obviously there's a lot of work, and if a person with two or three hives probably has to do a hell of a lot less work, but how much cost are we talking to get started with this to a level where people can expect some level of reasonable production, uh, you know, beyond just having the pollinators there, the cost and the time commitment to do this Right.
0: Well, it, it depends on whether you plan to buy hives or build your own. I mean, I, I know a lot of your listeners would probably be inclined to build their own, probably um, handy folks. Um, so, you know, if you're building your own, you could use scrap lumber you got laying around, which is great. That's an advantage of warrior hives and top bar hives is they don't need so many uh, fine cuts. You don't need as many fancy tools to make them as you would a Langstroth hive. Um, so you could be looking at under probably $50 in materials to make one of these hives. Uh, we do sell them. Ours are made out of western red cedar. Um, they're precision milled at our manufacturer, so they certainly cost more, but they're already done. So if you don't want to spend the time and risk cutting your hands off, um, you know, our hives range from $200 to $400, depending on how fancy it is. Um, Ben, when it comes to the other tools, uh, gloves, a veil, uh, I think Phil mentioned a veil and possibly gloves and a tool, um, those are really the necessities. Sometimes you'll need a smoker, but I, I use it sparingly just like he does. I think it's uh, quite disruptive to smoke the colony, but every once in a while you'll have that one colony that is just very aggressive. Some of my more pro- uh, productive colonies, the ones I get more honey off of, um, they're much larger, there's a lot more bees, and in my experience, the colonies that are larger tend to be more aggressive. And maybe it's just because of the chain reaction that occurs. If one bee gets upset, it communicates to all the other bees and tells them to attack this intruder. And so in those cases, I do smoke. Um, but again, I, I use it as sparingly as I can. So when it comes well, to the other tools, you're probably looking at you know, 100 to $200, depending on what you get. Now he, uh,
1: Phil had mentioned like at least like kind of the the shirt, the upper top part. What are your thoughts on, like, the full bee suits and all? I mean, these guys kind of look like Ghostbusters and all, but at least they're not getting, if, if they do really set off a colony, they've got a level of protection there.
0: Right. So you can either get a veil, which is just head protection. You could get a full jacket, which covers your arms and your chest, or you could get a, a full suit, which covers from head to toe, basically. Um, I do have a full suit that I inherited, so I, I've used it once. And that was with a colony that was so aggressive, I couldn't even go near it without getting stung in every part of my body. Um, most of the time, that's not going to be the case. Uh, for, for most new beekeepers, if you're buying bees somewhere and most worms you catch are not going to be like that. Um, so that's, that's going to be a rare exception. So you know, definitely a, a jacket gives you a little bit more peace of mind than just you know a veil and gloves because the rest of you is covered. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I definitely recommend for new beekeepers to wear a little bit more protection and then as you get used to working with bees, maybe drop the gloves, uh, cause then you're gonna be more accurate with your hands and then it's certainly more risk, you know, you're, you're, you'll want to be more careful because if you misplace your hand, you're gonna <laughs> smash a bee and get stung. Sure. And so the less bees you kill, the happier colony will be, the happier you will be, and, uh, everything will be great. Have you ever had
1: a colony like maybe that one there where you're just like these guys got to go and be set free or something? I just don't want to work with the the this, this colony of bees is a bunch of jerks. Have you ever gotten to that level before?
0: Uh, absolutely. I mean i I catch <laughs> you know I catch somewhere between fifty and a hundred swarms a year or more, and we actually we sell swarms to our customers here in Portland that they want bees that are natural and often feral, and so every once in a while you'll get one that just it is. Far too aggressive to be kept in a backyard. Because most of our customers are backyard beekeepers. They're not out on a farm. You know, they don't have acreage. They have a, you know, a 5,000 square foot lot in the city of Portland and, and they want to keep bees without bothering their neighbors. So um in that case, you do need bees that are docile, that aren't going to be, you know, attacking people. And so if you do have a very aggressive colony, you could either call another beekeeper and see if they want it and <laughs> pawn it off on them. Or you could, uh, you can find your queen and kill the queen. And then, because it, usually it's genetic. Uh, there, there are some cases where something has been bothering the bees, like a skunk, or maybe people have been throwing rocks at it, or who knows what. Yeah. Uh, they sometimes have their reason. But often it's genetic. And, uh, you, you know, unless you kill that queen and get those genetics out of that hive, but continue to be aggressive. And right. So you can just let the bees requeen themselves. Bees are very um, good at fixing problems in their hive without you having to do anything. So I usually just kill the queen and let them fix it. A month later, there'll be a new queen most of the time in that hive that they will have reared. And then I'll just watch as the, the last generation of bees die, and then this new generation takes over, I'll see if they're more docile. If they're not, then I might kill her or... Um, introduce another queen. You can always buy a queen if if that's something that's in line with your philosophy.
1: How long is the generational uh, changeover for bees? They're not real long-lived insects, are they?
0: But the workers have a in, during the bee season, which here in you know the the northern hemisphere is usually March or April through September or so, at least here in Portland um so during that time the bees live about a month the workers so about 30 days four to five weeks and that's not because their body could not live longer but it's because they work so hard that they break their body that the wings Mm -hmm. start to fall apart and you can actually look in your hive and you can compare a bee that's just hatched of which they they look fuzzy and almost wet and and their wings are perfect and then a, a bee that's you know on her last legs uh, her wings will have holes in them, and all of her hair is missing, and that's just because she's been working, you know, 24 hours a day to prepare that hive for winter. Because that's their goal. You know, they're they're trying to get enough stores and enough bees in there to live through one more winter and then do it all again.
1: So, I mean, you've talked about these hives getting fairly large. H- how much uh, honey, without you know t- taking so much, you have to feed them sugar water back or whatever you uh, have you. How much honey can you get from the average hive?
0: Uh, if they live, um, I always like to make it clear that bees die. Quite often, they die, and it can be demoralizing for new beekeepers <laughs> to spend all this money okay. and time researching and getting their bees, and then have them die that first season and get nothing. Um, certainly, don't expect to harvest anything in season one. So that's going to be the season where you either install a swarm of bees or a package of bees or a nuke. Um, but it's the second season, so you know, it's a good amount of time and. Money invested in getting those bees to that next year, uh, where you may or may not even get a surplus. And so when you do, um, I've gotten upwards of, you know, 90 to 100 pounds off of single hives. That's still leaving the bees at least 30 to 60 pounds for themselves. So that's a lot of honey stored up in one year by those bees. Um, but I'd say on average, the hives that I'm, you know, getting honey off of range from 30 to 50 pounds, uh, the ones I'm actually harvesting from. And that would, again, be leaving the bees enough for themselves to get through winter.
1: Now, Phil says he leaves the honey in the combs. Do you do that, too, or do you press the honey out? Uh,
0: I do both, depending on the need. Again, I've got a good number of hives, and also we sell honey in our store. So most consumers out there want liquid honey in a jar and most people have never had honey in the comb like Phil's talking about. Um, I do like comb honey. It actually sells for a premium, and that's one advantage of horizontal top bar hives is that they're really good at making cut comb honey because there's no wire, there's no frame, there's no foundation. The bees make this pristine white comb that you can harvest and just cut it into squares right off of the bar. Uh, with the Waray hives, uh, it's a little different because as you add boxes under the bees keep moving downward and then moving their honey upward so the combs that you're harvesting off the war hive at one point had developing bees in them so they're a little bit darker and you know i'm fine eating them but some people are wary of eating a comb that had a baby bee in it at one point <laughs> Um but when i if you really think about it, it's pretty absurd because in the end, when you're eating honey, you're eating regurgitated nectar that's gone through dozens or hundreds of honey stomachs. you know bees are just sure. spitting it up into each other's uh, bellies, so uh, most people don 't think about that part
1: and you're eating little little hairs and little antennae and all kinds of little stuff i was I was telling you just when I called you for the interview today that I was stirring some Arizona mesquite honey. Uh, raw honey into uh, a glass cam and milk tea and you can see little particulate things in there and that doesn't bother me at all. I think that actually when we completely filter and remove all that stuff, we're taking away some of what the honey has to offer us.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, When I do... Most of the time, if I want cut comb honey, it's pretty simple. You pull the comb out, you cut it into squares, and you either put it into Tupperware or eat it right there. They make special little plastic cases you can put it in and then you know sell it if you wanted to. Uh, For liquid honey, with these what are called foundationless hives, any hive that doesn't use foundation and usually without a frame, um, it's... Pretty simple to turn it into liquid honey. You could either, on a small scale, you could use mason jars and cheesecloth. You could take one jar, throw a comb in there, smash it with a spoon or with your bare hands. A lot of people like to do it with their hands because they, you know, get it to a better consistency that way. And then I'll take cheesecloth, put it over the lid, upturn it over another jar, and then just use gravity. You know, wait for a few hours and you usually have a jar full of honey. And then another jar full of wax, and then you can take that wax and put it outside on a tray and let the bees clean it up uh, completely because there'll be a little bit of honey left. And then you can take that wax and render it or do as you please, and then go eat your honey. Uh, on a larger scale, I use these bucket strainers. So I just make them myself. It takes two buckets. I'll throw in you know thirty to fifty pounds of honey into the top bucket. There's holes that I've drilled into the bottom of the bucket. Um, I've got a usually a a strainer bag in the top one just to strain out bee bodies and other things. Mm -hmm. And then I'll put that over another bucket that has a hole in its lid and just use gravity that way. And I'll put that out in the sun. Usually I'll put the lid on and then wait and come home at the end of the day. And you could do a lot of these at once. I've done multiple bucket systems at a time and gotten hundreds of pounds uh, into my buckets while I'm off doing other things, which um in my experience is is quicker than extracting from a langstroth hive which usually involves a lot of cutting combs and and spinning and and everyone trying to hold down the extracting machine so i i prefer crushing and straining myself
1: cool now where do I, where do i get my bees from i mean you mentioned trapping you've trapped you trap a lot of swarms every year how how do you trap a swarm of bees
0: so, um, well, there's, Phil mentioned a few ways to get bees. Um, one, and my favorite way is to catch a swarm of bees. And so um, any city you're in, really, um, that as long as there's a honeybee population, there's going to be people getting swarms of bees landing in their yards. Uh, swarms are the, the natural method by which bees reproduce. It's just how they make more colonies. So usually in the spring, the bees will decide, hey, there's enough of us. We're strong enough. we got enough stores. Let's split in half and so they'll take the old queen with them. They actually slim her down. They stop feeding her so that she can actually take off because when she's laying in full force, she can't even get off the ground. So they cut her off from royal jelly and wait until she can fly, and then once she's ready, they'll all take off, and they usually land on a tree branch or on a doorknob or on some resting place for an hour to a few days, and that is where the homeowners will start calling, and they're usually frantic. Um, they... they <laughs> You know, they'll call beekeeping businesses, they call the police, they call whoever they can because they have this clump.
1: There's spot. a gazillion bees in my yard all in a clump on my tree. Or exactly. Happen,
0: I mean, there right? could be 5,000, there could be 30,000 bees hanging there. And it's a pretty intimidating sight if you've never seen it, and especially if you don't know anything about honeybees and how docile they usually are. And so... Uh, if you live in a city that has honeybees, uh, there's probably a list of beekeepers available to remove swarms. Usually it's done for free, at least in, in the United States. Um, and so you could join one of these lists. Um, you might check with your local beekeeping association or local beekeeping supplier and get your name on the list. And usually you put the the area you're willing to serve and then homeowners, when they get a swarm, they're gonna do a Google search. Most of the time, that's how they're gonna find it. And they're going to, to find you on the list. They'll call you up. They're gonna be hyperventilating. And you'll need to walk <laughs> them off the ledge and uh explain to them that they're that they're docile. Uh you you will want to get the details. Uh, oftentimes homeowners don't realize that honeybees are not yellow jackets, honeybees are not bumblebees, and so definitely screen the calls, because once you start getting hundreds of calls like I do, uh, it's no fun when you drive 20 miles and find out it's a yellow jacket nest. So yeah. make sure you get the details, figure out whether it's actually honeybees, and then when you go out to get it, um, you could drop it into a cardboard box, you could drop it into a beehive. There um, there's uh, all sorts of things that I've put them in, oftentimes because I'm out of hives. I, I've caught so many swarms because uh, the bees don't check my schedule. They don't make sure <laughs> that I have enough hives in stock, and they um, oftentimes swarm at the same time. On a nice day, a sunny day, you might get a dozen calls in a city that has lots of swarms. So um, for some people, it's like their full-time job in the spring and early summer, uh, just catching swarms.
1: Now, that's catching a swarm. There's also something, and if it's the same thing, just let me know. But I, I've gotten the impression from some of the comments on the blog that there's also what would be more called trapping bees. Is, is, what, what is that?
0: Right, so there is, well, there's, there's two things they might be talking about, and it's probably what's called a bait hive, which is where you would essentially lure bees to whatever contraption it is you want them to live in. And so um, the way I do it is I use a a basically a miniature hive, a nucleus hive. So if it was one of my horizontal top bar hives, it would basically be one of those cut into a third. So there's seven or eight bars inside versus 28 or 30 like there usually are. And so there's a number of books out there that you can buy that will talk specifically about some of the the places you might want to put these to increase your chances of catching a swarm. But the general idea is uh, a small box, um, with some bars in it ideally so that if a swarm does move in and you don't notice it for a little while at least the bees are building from your bars and you can transfer them to your hive if you just put a box out there with a, a, you know, a plywood top and no bars they're going to have all their natural combs hanging beautifully and then you've got to figure a way to transfer them to your hive and so in order to bait the hive the box or whatever it is uh, usually I use lemongrass oil uh, lemongrass oil mimics a pheromone that the scout bees release when they find a good home and so lemongrass, not lemon balm to attract them, but lemongrass oil. You can get it at most um, stores that have essential oils. Um, we do sell it at our store. And so I put, you know, usually two drops is all you need inside the box, just right inside the entrance. And then I'll hang it up if I can, you know, 10, 20 feet in the air facing southeast, uh, at least here in Portland. That tends to be... Uh, the best way to do it, so if you could put it on your roof, actually, I actually have a video on my YouTube page of a flower pot, one of those biodegradable flower pots hanging from the side of my shed uh, that I just put a couple drops of lemongrass oil in and I waited and I was out there one day working in my hives and I heard this roaring noise behind me and I turned around and there was a swarm of bees just moving into my flower pot. So they certainly don't discriminate too much about what the, the contraption looks like. They'll move in pretty much anything as long as it's baited. It has, you know, a couple or maybe even just one small holes an entrance and has some lemongrass oil inside. Um, and then th- that's one of my favorite ways to get bees because I don't have to move. Uh, I can be at work or I can be somewhere else and the bees are moving into my, uh the house I've provided them and I didn't have to go catch them. And so... I do have a a number of customers throughout the country that I've I've recommended try the lemongrass oil, and they think it's absurd. They can't believe it works, and they call me the next day and say, hey, I caught a swarm. I can't believe it. And I I have a a woman here in town. She's caught, I think, 14 now this year, just baiting boxes and putting them all over her, her neighborhood.
1: Well, that's awesome, and I can see why some people are so hip on doing it. Yep. Now, would you recommend a new keeper to uh To take that approach, or would maybe your first bees would be better to buy it from somebody else or or what
0: have you? I think it's a fine approach to take for a new beekeeper, especially if you if you were to buy a hive or build your hive. If you've already got a hive, you may as well put it out and bait it because the bees oftentimes will find it and move in. And it, obviously, it depends <laughs> on where you live and the the honeybee population nearby. But here in Portland, it works very well. Uh, there's a lot of feral colonies. There's a lot of bees living in walls and trees and places that you know, people may not want them. And so I I think it's beneficial because if we have all these bait hives out there, at least they're not moving into people's walls and getting killed. Uh, and they're moving into something that at least the beekeeper wants them in.
1: Sure. Sure. Um I, I would really think, though, that if you could, finding someone that knows what the hell they're doing is probably a good idea, too. Like oh, absolutely.
0: Method. I definitely recommend, uh, regardless of your, your local beekeeping association's philosophy, oftentimes if you use these alternative hives, in some places you're going to be kind of scoffed at because you're not using what's normal, um, but I think a lot of your listeners might understand that uh, um, people scoffing at what they do. <laughs> um so just be prepared. If you go to a local beekeeping association, they may all use Langstroth hives. That's fine. I mean, the bees are bees, regardless of what box you keep them in. You can certainly learn from Langstroth beekeepers. Um, they've been doing it a lot longer than you have. They may not agree with foundationless. They may not agree with top hives, but you can learn from them. And they've caught swarms before, I can assure you that. Um, so they can help you with catching a swarm. They can probably help you with installing it into your hive, because all those things are really interchangeable.
1: On the uh, on the catching of swarms, I guess there's like the time of year to do that. I think you said spring is probably the best time to do that.
0: Yeah, here in Portland and, and most of North America, most of the swarms are you know, between April and June. That's uh, the height of swarm season. I've had a couple swarm swarms, you know, a number of swarms here in July. Actually, it was July. I think it just turned August, didn't it? Um, in July, th- there's a phrase or a, a saying that's uh, a swarm of bees in May is worth a load of hay. A uh, swarm of bees in June is worth a silver spoon, <laughs> and a swarm of bees in July isn't worth a fly. Because the okay. the later you catch a swarm, the the less opportunity it will have to gather enough resources to get through winter. And oh. so the earlier you catch it, the more time it's going to have to build up. Because they've got to build all the comb, they've got yeah. to you know raise their young, and they've got to gather you know usually thirty to fifty pounds of nectar and turn it into honey uh, before winter. And so if you catch it in late July, they're not going to have much time in most places.
1: And whereas down here in the south, they might, they might be able to pull it off. I mean, they can probably work until October,
0: late October here. Yeah, yeah. Again, beekeeping is very much related to your climate, your local forage, your local resources. So uh, definitely check with your local beekeepers, and, and they'll have a better idea of when you can start a, a colony uh, successfully.
1: When you were talking about the queen, you were talking about something called royal jelly, and I've, I've heard a lot about that as a supplement. Can you explain exactly what that is?
0: Uh, royal jelly is a, um, basically a food, uh, produced by the nurse bees. These are the bees that are raising the young, also the bees that are feeding the queen. Um, <laughs> it is a highly nutritious substance. They, they make, I mean, the only input going into a hive is, is pollen and, Honey, or sorry, and and, and nectar, which they're turning into honey. Uh, They mix some of that stuff up and create something called bee bread, Um, but it is, you know, it's derived from their food that they're eating. Uh, It's secreted by the worker bees. It's fed to all bee larvae. So if you look in a hive and you see an egg or a larva, you'll usually see this little, like, white substance under them that they're laying on, and they will eat that. Um, So. All bees start out in the royal jelly, but after the third day, all workers and drones, they're cut off from royal jelly, so they would not grow sex organs and become a queen. If they want to make a female into a queen, they'll continue feeding that royal jelly past day three. It's a pretty good estimate is around day three. Um, They'll continue feeding that to them, and then that female will grow the sex organs and and a so the thing she stores all the sperm in. And she'll become a queen
1: that makes sense okay and, and what is your thought on it being used as a nutritional supplement is there is it hype or is there something there as far as you know human usage
0: now, I, I definitely think pretty much all the resources in a honeybee colony are are beneficial and they're highly nutritious um, and they're they're very clean and I think there's something to it. I mean, if you look at uh, some of the studies on royal jelly, I mean, they've they've been trying to use it to combat all sorts of diseases, and they, you know, they have had some success with with healing wounds and using it as antibiotics. So I think, yeah, there's a lot more to learn. Uh, in honeybee colonies than we've found so far, especially when it comes to medicinal uses of things. When you look at the, the propolis, which is the tree resin that they gather, uh, it's antiseptic. Um, if a honeybee colony has something large die inside, like a mouse, for instance, I've seen this, because um, when bees kill a mouse, they can't lift sure. the whole thing and carry it out, and they're not going to chew it up. They don't have the mandibles capable of doing that like yellow jackets do. So rather than just letting it rot in the bottom of their hive, they'll actually entomb it in this tree resin that they gather, and create this mummy, essentially. And so sometimes in the spring, you'll look in your hive, and you'll see this red mass on the bottom, and that is often a dead creature uh, that they've totally sterilized. And then you
1: really? And it it's out. red? Yes. That was the big lump of red that I found in some honey one time then. It was probably yep. not a mouse. It wasn't that big. It was about you know, the size of the tip of your thumb, and it was bright red and I just removed it because I didn't know what it was and continued to eat the honey, which I guess is okay, but that must have been something that they they enveloped and wrapped up.
0: Yep. Yeah, they, gra- they gather the resin from trees and other plants, and they use it to seal up any holes that they don't want in their hive. So if you poke a hole in the hive, usually the next day you'll see it's totally sealed up. Um, if their entrance is too large, say if they are being disturbed by other bees or other creatures... You'll actually see your bees create a little wall inside the entrance and reduce the entrance themselves using that propolis. And uh, they glue everything down in that hive with propolis.
1: It's almost like they know what they're doing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> something like that.
1: So um, tell us a little bit about your, your business itself. Like, so you do hives, you do swarms, you do all kinds of stuff.
0: Yeah, so in 2008, I started our company's Bee Thinking. Um, I I knew I wanted to make my bees pay for themselves somehow. So first, you know, every beekeeper when they're starting out, they think, "Well, sell honey," and then I realized that's not as lucrative as one would think. There's a lot of time and money that goes into producing a lot of honey, and also my philosophy changed. You know, I realized that you know. Bees need their honey more than I do, and I don't want to manage them for surplus. So I certainly get surplus, but I don't do it for a living. Um, and so I started building these top bar hives, horizontal and war a, for myself, and I was blogging about it and also posting on Phil's uh, forum, biobees.com, and people started emailing and asking if they could buy them. And I thought that was absurd because I'm no woodworker. I was just some guy in my garage like pounding together these hives, but I was making twenty of them for myself because that that next season I was going to start twenty hives, ten of each type to experiment and so more and more people started bugging me to see if they could get one because there there weren't really any producers of these things at that time and so being a tech savvy guy, I built a web page and you know built an online store just to see what would happen and you know I shipped my first hive to Louisiana, and I think it was early two thousand nine um, you know, I think I spent more on shipping than I actually made on the hive because i I didn't know how much it would cost to ship a four foot long box to Louisiana and now I've uh, definitely learned a lot about shipping very large packages all over the world at this point. We've shipped hives as far away as Australia and England um, and that, the main reason is there's there's not many people making horizontal topper hives or warrior hives. Especially out of western red cedar, which is the wood we use. Uh, that is the preferred wood in, in the UK, because it, it lasts so long in the elements. It also has, uh, you know, a better R value, when it comes to insulation. Uh, and overall it's just, it's just a better wood than pine, which is the normal wood used in the United States and most other places to make a beehive. And so, you know, it's at this point, as of this year, I I quit my job in IT, and now all I do is sell beehives. We have a store here in Portland. Uh, I've got a number of employees, and we uh, we sell locally, but mostly we we sell throughout the rest of the United States. We ship a lot of hives to Texas. I think that's where you're at, and uh, actually most of our hives end up going to the East Coast.
1: Awesome, and it's, it's just great to hear somebody building a business like that and, and creating jobs in such a, a beneficial way for everybody. I mean, it's one thing to create a, a company and create jobs, but you could be ma- manufacturing you know biotoxins or something. Sure. You're, you're actually like part of the solution and building a business at the same time, uh, and that's, that's hugely encouraging. Have you noticed kind of an uptick in the general population? Like, is, do you see this as like a growth sector now?
0: Oh absolutely I think uh, and I think Gunther Hawk, who's a uh, a beekeeper very famous here in the United States, um, he said that the uh, I'm paraphrasing him, but he essentially said that the these huge losses of honeybees is actually a benefit because it's raised awareness of how important these creatures are to our food supply and to our world as a whole, and it's also certainly increased the number of beekeepers because most of the people that come into my store or, or you know go to our web web page or order a beehive it's it's not farmers, it's not people with, you know, huge uh, yards uh, that have been doing this type of thing for a long time. It's people that have never kept bees before, that really don't know anything about them, and they want to do something to help. Uh, they want to benefit the bees, they want to help the local pollinators, and they just want to do their part um, because they think, you know, these creatures have been mistreated uh, with all the, the various pesticides and, and, the, and management practices, and so they want to try and do something. And the funny thing is uh, sometimes on on Saturdays I'll ask everyone that comes in my store, you know, do you have chickens? And I'd say 75% of the people come in have chickens. And so sometimes I call chickens the gateway drug to bees because then they end <laughs> up getting bees. And then usually they end up getting goats or some other larger creature. Um, but it's, you know, it's this whole backyard farming movement. And trying to live off your own land and you know know where your food comes from, I think that that's sure. very important, and especially when it comes to things like honey and other things, you never know what's in it, what chemicals were used on it, so definitely do your research if you don't plan to start a beehive of your own, I certainly recommend buying local honey if you can uh, if you can you know get to know a beekeeper nearby, you know one that doesn't use medication and and uh, all sorts of other things in their hive um, because I think you'll benefit from it it'll be healthier for you and your family.
1: Now you mentioned chickens. I remember talking to one guy that said he had to move his hive because it was too close to where his chickens hung out, and there was one chicken in particular that became like a bee elimination system. It would just stand there and snatch them out of the air.
0: Yeah, I, I've not heard of that. I've, I've, you know, generally chickens and bees can live uh, in yeah. harmony. Uh, there's there's enough bees in there. I don't think one chicken is going to, sure. to take out that many. Uh, and usually, when I've seen chickens near beehives, they they sometimes they'll eat the dead bees, but usually they kind of give the hives a wide berth. So maybe that guy's chickens were a little bit. So maybe he had one chicken
1: that was digging bees. He said the thing would just stand there, and as the bees would come in and out, he would just. It was a rooster, by the way, a big uh, <laughs> Buff Warpington rooster, and right. he was just snatching them out of the freaking air.
0: Yeah, I, I'm sure it happens. Most cities don't allow roosters, so it's probably not going to be a problem for most that people. That's kind
1: of a homestead guy. <laughs> uh, that's that's really cool. And I think there is, I mean, you said, like, you, you know, if you get them through your first year, you can get some decent production out of them in your second season. And these are a few hives. Is not going to make a business for a, a, a family. But, you know, being able to produce 30, 40 pounds of honey a year, that's a significant amount of honey.
0: Yeah, that's that's more honey than most families will use.
1: I must. Maybe you have it
0: like that, and it's great to share
1: with people as well. Now on the on the colony collapse, have you had problems with losing colonies to it, or have you maybe seen less of it in the natural beekeeping field than in the conventional? Uh,
0: I've never personally had colony collapse affect any of my hives that I'm aware of. Um, colony collapse is very specific in terms of of what the. Uh, symptoms are, you know, the the workers supposedly leave the queen and leave their young and basically abandon the colony. And th- I think there's a lot of other reasons why colonies die. And I think oftentimes with colony collapse, especially a lot of new beekeepers, they just assume my colony died, therefore it was colony collapse. And so the problem with it is there's not been, you know, one uh, method of reporting. There's not been, you know, beekeeping is very antiquated. Now, if you look at um, most of the books, if you look at most of the suppliers out there, not much has changed, you know, since 1860 or so, um, and and so th- there's not a lot of communication, and so a lot of new beekeepers I think uh, misdiagnose what's going on in their hive. It could have been a, a whole host of other problems. It could have been varroa mites or Nosema or all these other issues that affect honeybee colonies, and those are usually the reasons my colonies die. Varroa mites, I think, like at least 75% of the time, they're probably the root cause of why your hive died. And uh, colony collapse, mostly, uh, at least from what I've read, has been affecting the commercial guys, the guys with, you know, 1,000 beehives or 10,000 beehives in their apiary.
1: Gotcha. And th- those guys do a lot more moving
0: around of their bees as well. Yeah. And most of the commercial guys, at this point, they've got to move their bees because they make most of their money by pollination contracts. And so, like the almonds are uh, that 's the largest migration of beekeepers in the world uh, every year in February they move um, it 's something like one point five million honeybee colonies to the almonds in uh, northern california and These are beekeepers coming from Florida and from New York and from Oregon and basically every state that has beekeepers there's bees beekeepers trucking their bees to california and i think we only have something like 2.5 billion colonies in the whole country so more than Mm -hmm. half of our bees are in one spot every spring and then we take them all back uh... to where they came from and uh, that's i can't think of a better way to to pass disease and pests around than to move everyone to one spot every year
1: well it would be like lumping uh... half the population of of the nation into one city and then going gee look at a lot of people got sick that's shocking you know, the number one place people get sick I think today is on airplanes because you 're in a you know pressurized metal tube for four six, eight, ten hours with a, a you know three hundred other of your uh, closest non friends
0: exactly <laughs> and honeybees they like to drift they they quite often end up accidentally going to the wrong hive and especially when you put one point five million of them right next to each other oh, it 's yeah. hard for them to find theirs because uh, they 're all white boxes strapped to pallets um, so the the whole commercial uh, pollinating thing. I mean, I I understand. I mean, these beekeepers—they've been—they're often third, fourth generation beekeepers. They want to continue the family business, and a lot of them, if you talk to them, they don't love what they have to do. I mean, they don't love having to take them to the almonds. The almonds the bees don't even like. But if you stick them in the middle of a field with only one thing for to forage on, they have to forage on it, and ultimately mm-hmm. they end up pollinating it. They also don't like the fact that uh, the almonds are blooming in February. In most places in the Northern Hemisphere, it's still Cold. You know, bees would be in a very tight cluster just trying to keep warm. And Mm -hmm. uh, these bees are coming from, you know, places that are much colder than California. And so in order to stimulate those colonies and get them to the populations they need to get the contracts, they have to feed them. And they have to feed them a lot. And really the only economical way for them to do that has been to use high fructose corn syrup. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, uh, following, you know, these, uh, trucks full of bees, you'll see these tanker trucks full of high fructose corn syrup. And they just they pump it into the hives and try and get those bees thinking that, hey, there's all this food coming in, we've got to build up. Because before they get the contract, a guy will go around to all the hives and check them and make sure that they're healthy enough and that they have enough bees inside because the farmer doesn't want to pay for an empty beehive. Sure. And so, you know, these beekeepers have to do all these things they don't particularly like, but th- otherwise they can't feed their family, so they're stuck. So that's why I think it's so great that, that these backyard beekeepers are popping up everywhere uh, because, you know, if my bees die, you know, I can still feed my family. I'm not going out of business. Most people, if they lose a honeybee colony, they're going to be fine. But if these commercial guys lose their colonies, they're doomed. They just lost their business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And of course you mentioned the high fructose corn syrup. If you're if you're consuming that today, bee or beast or, or man, um you're consuming a GMO product. There's there's you know, if it's if it's if it's high fructose corn syrup, it's G from GMO corn. Yep. So that introduces that whole component into the into the mix. Yeah, it's no good. <laughs> so um what, what do you do you have any thoughts on like how maybe even people that aren't keeping bees can like just improve habitat so that the bees that are there have have more food sources and and things to utilize
0: uh, i think you you touched on it a little bit in the in the podcast with phil um, certainly bees love weeds so when it comes to dandelions and clover the things that we like to rip out of the ground You know, maybe leave it for an extra week. Um, I know that, you know, a lot of people think it's unsightly, but if you take a minute before you mow and look, you will probably see hundreds of bees all over your lawn um, enjoying the nectar and pollen coming out of those flowers. So that's one thing you can do. It also saves you gas and uh, and time. Um, The other thing is certainly plant native if you can uh pollinator friendly flowers if you do a google search out there for for your zone, your area uh you'll find all sorts of resources on the internet um you know showing you what you can plant um ideally plant things that that maybe bloom throughout the year, so don't just plant stuff that all blooms in June but maybe uh, plant things that bloom from February through September so that way the bees they don't they don't run out of food. They, they always have a consistent nectar source, uh, going into their hive, and that's going to help them out a lot.
1: Awesome. Well, you want to remind people again about your website and, uh, what they can find there?
0: Uh, yeah, our website is com. That's B-E-E, and then the word thinking, like you're thinking about something, dot com. And, uh, there you can find top bar hives, warrior hives, um, all the accessories you might need. We also have a lot of information on there about, um, keeping these types of hives. And uh, also, we do have classes locally here in Portland, and I also do travel um, a good bit throughout the country to teach about top bar hives and war hives, so certainly contact me if you're interested in that.
1: Well, cool, Matt. I appreciate you being with us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, great stuff, Matt. Again, thank you for being on the Survival Podcast today. And a little reminder to all the listeners out there, Matt was so nice as to agree to provide a discount code, not just for the members Brigade, for everyone that's listening to today's show. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, you can get 8% off all your Hive orders at BeThinking.com. The discount code uh, is Survival. So again, Matt, thanks for doing that for the audience. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Matt Reed, helping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these
0: days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay. I- Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd
1: Some we'll realize our
0: children just can't pay. There's nobody up there cares.